Welcome to the Health Autonomy at End of Empire podcast on Mask FM, a semi-monthly investigation into the struggle to create health autonomy and the revolutionary care to build a new world. If you're interested in supporting our network with a monthly donation, please visit patreon.com slash maskfm. In this episode, we talk with a primary care doc who, fresh out of residency, landed a dream job in a progressive LGBT clinic. She was eventually grilled by her higher-ups for a lack of productivity and patient turnover during clinic visits. She then joined ranks with her fellow nurses, counselors, and clerks to push for a clinic-wide unionizing effort. In addition to these experiences, she's been active in LGBT justice work and pushing for a single-payer model. We've kept her name anonymous to avoid retribution from her previous employers. We hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get into your clinical and organizing work, everyone probably wants to hear about why you got into healthcare in the first place. So what was that journey like and, and how'd you get to where you are now? So as a, um, as a young person, as a teenager, I, I found feminist activism and um, just growing up in my uh, hometown, my friends and I started a little feminist activist club in my high school. Later, we got involved in um, some feminist organizing and activism in Boston, and I found that I really loved being an activist. I had identified as a feminist probably since I was like 10 or 11. And, uh, you know, and I always identified as a girl who liked science. I didn't specifically want to go into medicine. Um, In fact, I wasn't really, I was kind of turned off by it. Um, when I was in college, um, my interest in activism grew, and I, um, I got involved with a lot of student labor activism. And simultaneously, I found public health as a field, and that really appealed to me because it really merged um, a lot of my interests in like history, um, social change, science, politics. But, you know, I didn't know that clinical med- I didn't really feel that clinical medicine was the way I wanted to engage in public health and social change. After college, I, um, I volunteered for a few months in Calcutta, which is a city where my parents are from, with an organization called Durbar Mohila Shamanaya Committee, which is a sex workers union. And I was drawn to it um, because it kind of merged a lot of my interests in women's rights, in labor organizing, um, and in health. And that provided me a an example of doctors and health workers engaging in community-based activism at, for power in a very marginalized community and really trying to change a lot of um, social norms and social dynamics. At that point, I had just finished college, so I think I was like 23. Yeah. Yeah, so I spent like three months there, and that was very moving because it was an organization that that had about 9,000 members in a red light district in Calcutta, and they said they had 60,000 around the state. So 
And these were all people who identified as sex workers um, and who, for the most part, were um, very poor, uh, mostly women. And, you know, they they did a lot of general medicine, um, but mostly they provided a lot of uh, social support and community programming for a community that had previously been very fragmented um, and therefore, like, more vulnerable to um, a lot of things, including health problems. A, a doctor was involved in starting the organization, but the organization was run at that point by um, sex workers and their children, uh, adult children. So, you know, I, I came back to the U.S. and I thought that maybe um, medicine would be a way that I could do the kind of uh, community organizing and social change work that I, I really enjoyed doing um, and felt very connected to because I saw um, physician as a potential organizer um, because the physician and healthcare workers in general gain a lot of knowledge and very intimate up close experience of what people's lives are like and I think that's the most like that is the basis on which social change is made when people kind of understand the conditions that um, they live in and that their like neighbors live in and then decide to um, you know try to make some change around it so um, yeah, so, you know, I sort of begrudgingly decided to take some science classes and do all the pre-med stuff, and eventually I applied to medical school, and I did, like, a public health degree and all that. But my, you know, my intention has always, or my interest really has always been in um, primary care medicine as um, as sort of like a lens into organizing. Yeah. So in, 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 in the group that you were working with in Calcutta, was that centered around primary care? Was that community-based? Or? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the way it started was um, there was a, a, a doctor there who, who, rumor has it, he in the 60s was a Nakshalite, which is like a militant Marxist kind of sect in, uh, in India, which is quite controversial because because uh, of their militant tactics. But so point being that he had some some interest in social and political change, um, as far as I know. Um, and he, in the early 90s, um, HIV was kind of starting to explode in India. And um, he was working as a clinician, and um, I don't think, I don't know anything about his political activity then. But he was asked to, to um, do some kind of intervention in the highest risk groups, which were uh, sex workers, um, to prevent the spread of HIV. So he was told to go and um, open some STD clinics in red light districts where sex workers were concentrated. And he tried to do that, and he found that like opening sex uh, STD clinics was very unsuccessful because, um, because it was very stigmatizing for the sex workers to go to them. Um, you know, when you're in sex work, you don't want to be seen walking into an STD clinic. So he, he stopped doing that after a while and realized that really the way to approach this issue was to open general just general primary care clinics. And they were very rudimentary clinics, like, you know, um, maybe 10 by 10 rooms with, like, a table and a curtain um, and really not much else, uh, and, like, a person inside being the clinician. So the organization grew up around, like, this handful of clinics in this very densely populated urban area in Calcutta. Um, and, you know, eventually it became also, like, a program with social organizing because... 
in addition to the clinics, they started organizing peer educators among the um, sex workers who lived in the area and worked in the area. Um, and so the peer educators um, sort of started first doing peer education around health issues, but then they found that people had a lot of social needs, and so they started providing things like schooling for children, retraining work, uh, I mean, retraining classes for the people who live there, uh, sometimes like cultural programming. Yeah, it was a really formative experience for me. So then you that. came back, and then pre-med, med school, residency, you went through all that. Oh, gosh. And and you still stuck with it, mm-hmm. and and it, it seemed like health justice was still something really important, um, even after residency. And and so you you went and worked for a clinic that really embraced an idea of research, advocacy, and education, uh, and understanding healthcare as a human right, and focusing on LGBTQ healthcare. And and it was a clinic that it, that grew very much in sort of the village radical politics at that time around uh, gay liberation. And and so many years later, there's this clinic, it's set up, it's focusing on that topic, and, and you're working in that clinic. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of interesting that right now we're recording in, in what center are we? Right this now? is at the, the LGBT center um, in uh, 13th Street in New York City in the village. Right. Which yeah. is like a center of the community. Exactly. So, so this clinic that you worked at, um, it, it's part of this like broader progressive radical left milieu of of spaces dedicated to to healthcare, to social justice, to legal rights within the LGBTQ community. So, what was what was that experience like going and working in that clinic right after residency? Well, I was drawn to the clinic because I wanted to be an HIV doctor, and I was drawn to HIV medicine for the same reasons that I was drawn into um, medicine and public health. And I think a lot of infectious disease specialists are drawn to the um, to HIV work and infectious disease because um, a lot of infectious disease is social disease. It's a result of a lot of social factors. Um, and, um, yeah, so I wanted to learn HIV medicine, um, and I was very excited to get the opportunity to do it in a place that had the history of um, the clinic that I worked in because uh, that clinic came out of a lot of organizing in mostly the gay male community during the AIDS epidemic in um, the 80s and 90s. So I, I hoped to find colleagues and a, and a spirit there that reflected that, you know, that history and legacy of social change, community health, you know, like fighting for a marginalized population and a sense of social justice. Um, and I hope to do, yeah, I hope to do the kind of like transformative community health and social change work in addition to clinical medicine or complementing it. Um, I had sort of vague ideas, but, um, you know, I thought that would be like one of the more likely places to be able to um, let my ideas grow. Yeah, and then 2014 issues started happening and and there were some problems with management. And, And what was that like? So... Um, I, I started working there in 2013 and, um, and by early 2014, I got whisper, just sort of word of mouth from colleagues, um, mostly in the mental health department that, um, some people were thinking about unionizing 
It started in the mental health department, um, and a lot of the mental health clinicians were concerned that the turnover was so high in their department. They really valued their colleagues, um, both like their colleagues' expertise um, and dedication, um, their expertise in doing LGBT health and their dedication to the community and the, um, the population. Um, and so, you know, losing a, a uh, like a provider interrupts the continuity of care and really disturbs disturbs the, the practice and the individual patient's experience. And so in mental health especially, because it's so much about relationships, um, you know, they were really feeling the effects of the turnover. And so I think they thought that, you know, the turnover was due to a lot of reasons, but some of them would be, like, maybe able to be remedied by having a union and more of a voice in you know, in creating an environment where people wanted to stay. I don't know the reasons that those people left. Um, but in general, I experienced at that clinic a very high turnover um, in all of the staff, including in the medical staff, which is relatively unusual, I think, in medicine to have um, people come and go so quickly. So, you know, people had a lot of different concerns. Um, I don't think there was, I mean, as far as I know, I don't think there's anything specific that happened in 2014 that triggered this, aside from, like, the turnover I was talking about, and I think that was chronic. But, you know, some of the chronic concerns were, um, like, a, I think, a, like, a lot of pressure on seeing a high number of patients um, and, I think, less less interest from management in discussing the quality or creativity of care. Um, there was... Uh, the, the pay across the board was low relative to other similar jobs. People had different concerns. Um, some of the concerns were around um, the health insurance wasn't great for people who were not single if they had any dependents, like a partner or any children. So, you know, often if people did uh, either become partnered or, um, or have children, they would often leave for a job that had better benefits. A lot of people at the place were in school, and there weren't really any um, any programs to support their schooling. Those are some of the main. Um, well, you know, and then a couple of other things. One was that people, some people, didn't feel like they had um, they had like a grievance procedure or like a fair process by which to raise their concerns. And I think some people felt like sometimes, you know, they they were afraid of raising their concerns that people might be targeted. And, yeah, and I think there wasn't a sense that, that we had, um, like, a fair and equal say at the, at the, I mean, there wasn't really a table for us to sit at. Um, so I think, I think a lot of people wanted to be more involved in, in decision-making at the clinic because almost everyone who works there um, really loved the mission of the clinic, um, came for many similar reasons as I did. Um, they wanted to be in a mission-driven place with this um, radical political history um, and really contribute to, like, the community health of the LGBTQ community in New York. Yeah, so so I got I heard wind of this organizing campaign in, um, in like, July of 2014, and I was very surprised, um, pleasantly surprised, and very excited, in part because I had a background doing um, labor organizing as a student, um, and I really had a like a 
strong sympathy for labor organizing. I really love it. And in part because I was just very overwhelmed with my job um, and felt uh, under-supported, and I, um, I wished I had more support both clinically, but also in terms of community. I think a lot of overwork is very isolating. Like um, a lot of work in our society, in capitalist society, is very isolating. Um, and when you're doing a lot of it, it's yeah, I found it very isolating. So I was just happy in part to have like the community that came out of the um, organizing campaign. So it's, it's, some of the listeners might find it odd that it is a clinic that has more of a social justice feel to it. It's not like your typical urgent care walk-in clinic for profit. Mm-hmm. And the people that you work with, the patients that you get to work with, and, and, and just the broader community that you're involved with is is one which is more in tune to your politics and your desires for everyday life, and, and yet you were dealing with these issues. Was that part of the turnover? Was that part of the shock that people came in, they were okay with the lower pay, they were okay with some of the working conditions, and then realizing that it was it was more about turnover and reimbursements? Yeah. Did that, was that part of the shock? Um, I think, you know, I think a lot of people like me came came in very... Like idealistic wanting to do local social change work and um, and it you know I think the a lot of the um, like spirit that had initially um, founded the clinic I think wasn't really readily accessible um, on a day to day basis for most of the workers in a lot of senses the clinic was a wonderful place like they I think they um, do the patient population is really diverse and amazing and reflects like a lot of beautiful and interesting parts of the New York um, LGBT community. Um, and even like the workplace itself is quite like beautiful and the, um, the staff is very diverse and very queer, um, which makes it a very, gives it a very fun, affirming um, queer sense and vibe. So, and especially compared to traditional medicine, it felt very relieving and affirming for me as a queer person. But I do think, you know, um, after that wore off a little bit, I think I and a lot of other people saw that, you know, in a lot of senses, the, a clinic like that, even despite its history, um, still operates in the same very harsh economic environment that all health systems do in our society, and especially being, like, serving an underserved population. Um, you know, the economics are just very difficult. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure on volume, on seeing a high number of patients. Um, and that um, kind of <clears throat> that kind of trumps a lot of other um, issues that, uh, or other ideas people might have. Um, and so, yeah. And then... Your, your unionizing effort was really unique in that everyone joined up in, into the same union, and that's something that a lot of people have, have a hard time coming across in, in mm-hmm. different hospitals and clinics. We're all scattered in mm-hmm. different unions. And, and so how, how, was that, how was that experience in, in getting everyone together? Um, that was... So we organized a union, um, uh, some people called a wall-to-wall union, which means everyone in the clinic was included in the union, um, ranging from the doctors, the NPs, PAs, um, all the different kinds of nurses, and the clerical workers. The janitors and the security staff were not included because they were outsourced. They were like, their employer was another company, different companies. So we took advantage of labor law in order to do that. Labor law says that, um, that in hospitals, you cannot 
um, organize across job class. You can't have a union with doctors and nurses in it together. Um, this was written in the National Labor Relations Act in the 30s. Um, I'm not sure what the intention was behind that law, but that's how the law stands. Um, but it doesn't say anything about clinics. And, um, and so in the clinic, you can organize across job class. And um, we decided to do that because, like, a diversity of people, like, of different people from different job descriptions, um, job titles came together and were all interested. Um, it was it was interesting, I think. Um, the good thing is that we, the thing that brought us together was, like, our love of the clinic and the work and, um, yeah, and believing in the mission of the organization. Um, we had a lot of common... Um, like a lot of common ground and shared values and vision, I think, for having the union. Um, I think all of us wanted to use the union to make it a better place to work and be like a more sustainable place to work in the long term. Um, and also to make the care better for patients. But, you know, also within that there was a lot of diversity and um, diversity, uh, diversity in terms of um, class. And I think... Sometimes there were some conflicts around that because of the class diversity um, during the union. Well, I don't know if it was only the class diversity, but the dynamics in our particular workplace were that um, the most uh, the department that was most supportive of the union was the mental health department, um, and the department that was the there was two people in my department in the medical department who led. Um, or were the kind of um, figureheads f uh, against um, like against the union, so they led the campaign against the union and um, and so you know I think it led to a lot of uh, i don 't know it was challenging, but i mean any any union organizing drive is there 's going to be people who are uh, for the union and people who are against, and you know debate ensues so Personally, I think overall it's very powerful to ha um, potentially powerful to have um, <clears throat> all the different workers in the union um, because uh, you know primary care we work as a team um, we you you know a doctor doesn't work by themselves um, they work in um, in conjunction with social workers and nurses and the front desk staff and so it really makes sense I think to negotiate the terms of employment um, on behalf of the whole team. Um, and then, you know, also very practically speaking, um, in <clears throat> in the medical environment, uh, the providers, so the doctors, PAs, and NPs, are those are the people who do the billing. They're the ones who generate the revenue for the clinic. So a union um, has a lot more strength by having those people included in the union because it gives them a lot more bargaining power um, and negotiating power. Were the were the doctors more hesitant? About joining and joining with, let's say, quote-unquote, lower-tier staff? Um, they didn't say it like like that. I think, um, so there was like a couple of doctors who were vocally against. Um, there was uh, about three of us who were pro, and that was like a mix of PA, NP, and me, um, and MD. So physician assistants, yeah, nurse practitioners. Exactly. And, and, you, yeah. and me. Um, so we were pro. And then there was a whole bunch in the middle, maybe. Our whole department was around 20 people. So there's probably like, I don't know, 10, 10, to 15, 10 to 12, I don't know, in the middle, right. who were pretty silent. Um, and, you know, I think some of them were scared. Maybe some were indifferent. I think they were sort of okay with their conditions. Yeah. And then some, I think, were um, afraid or 
reluctant to advocate for themselves. Um, and, you know, I, don't, I think there's probably complex reasons why. Some of it is, I think, the socialization that goes into becoming a doctor. Um, there's a lot of class status um, involved in, like, most doctors' identities. And I think maybe, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe they saw it as, like, beneath them to have a union, um, even though, you know, going back to the issue of um, working conditions, you know, working conditions in primary care are very difficult, especially in a clinic um, like a federally qualified health center, which sees a lot of um, uninsured people, um, poor people, um, people with, like, a lot of complexity in terms of their medical conditions. And so, um, you know, providing medical care in these settings it, um, is pretty challenging and taxing, um, and and I think is what contributes in part to um, doctors and other providers not staying for very long because they burn out. Burnout is like a national epidemic in medicine in general and in primary care especially. Right, right. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, but despite the, these, like, people's dissatisfaction with uh, and, like, burnout um, with their jobs, I think some doctors are maybe shy or reluctant to try to work collectively to make a change. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, and also I think a lot of Americans in general are just not used to thinking in collective in a collective fashion, and like you know, not used to thinking about how to make change together. Doctors especially are trained to be individual, like um, like it's a you know it's a profession in which you the individual kind of like do a lot, um, and you're trained to um, be very independent, which is great for a lot of reasons and good for clinical work, but sometimes I think um, we have a harder time thinking about how to work together. Right. And, and and so just shifting gears a little bit, so was race and class something that that the clinic maybe wasn't talking about even among its own coworkers? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, so, yeah, I think we focused, we focused on LGBTQ health, obviously, um, that's what we did. And often in our meetings, when we talked about issues that the, the clinic was working on um, at, like in its advocacy, and it often talked about access to care for, like, access to specific kinds of LGBTQ care. And, um, and that's obviously very important. Uh, but, you know, I felt like uh, we didn't really talk about a lot of other issues. The mental health department was, um, I think, or is um, a little more complex. Like, they, because they kind of deal with the psychological, um, you know, the complex psychologies of our patients, they see them in, like, in their entireties, which is not just LGBTQ, but, you know, really um, all of their experiences. Um, and so, you know, while I was working there, for example, the Eric Garner event happened, and um, and in their department, I heard that they, you know, some of them said this is like, you know, the issue of um, like us living in a racist society and um, like face like our patients face racism and police violence on a daily basis. That's something we should be talking about, like here in the clinic, in the context of LGBTQ health. So I think in their their department, they had some conversations about it, but um, you know, in our department, we didn't really talk much about like race and class as it applied to um, our, the patients that we took care of. 
This um, surprised me <clears throat> um, and frustrated me a little bit because we worked in an FQHC, which by definition serves people who are either uninsured or on Medicaid. Um, you know, a small handful of our patients had private um, insurance, but um, but for the most part, you know, it is defined by class, and that's the intention in the history of the FQHCs, the community health centers. Um, you know, but we we rarely engaged in you know in talking about how to make things better for poor people, um, including LGBTQ poor people. And I wish we did because I think that like queer people um, can provide a really important lens into into like improving uh, conditions for poor and working people. So, but again, you know, I think this is mostly because. In, in clinical medicine as it is practiced uh, in general and in, in my experience at, <clears throat> in this clinic and my previous workplaces, you know, medicine is very much, uh, very much biomedical in our society. Like the economic structure is that uh, insurance, um, you, you get money, the clinic gets money from um, the insurance system that happens by billing um, and from the pharmacy system that happens by prescribing. And so we don't really have much time or incentive to talk about like a lot of the social and political conditions that lead to, you know, health and disease in our communities. And um, most of the doctors that I worked with at this clinic were trained in social medicine, um, which is what I was trained into, which teaches us to consider the patient in the context of their <clears throat> social, political, economic, and ecological environments, um, and really try to think about health and disease in those contexts. But despite that training, um, you know, the reality of practicing medicine in, like, modern America is that you, it is very hard to really meaningfully, you know, think about community health in those terms. Um, certainly, like, I, I apply it when I'm seeing a patient um, on an individual basis, trying to be sensitive to thinking about those um, aspects of, you know, who they are. Um, but in terms of, you know, thinking creatively about treating disease uh, and preventing disease at the community level um, and trying to make demands for social change, um, you know, we didn't really have the space to engage in those discussions. And maybe thinking back, do you think that if, if, if you could have gone back and, and done things differently, could the FQHC or the primary care space also be a social justice space, a space where coworkers, patients can get together, can talk. Uh, if, if, you know, what happened with Eric Gardner really impacted um, workers and patients, do you think that, you know, if, if um, those, I mean, unfortunately, if those events happen again, what could we do differently to, to organize, to galvanize, mm -hmm. to leverage primary care spaces? That's a great question. I think it would be wonderful if like clinics were um, a little more open and participatory and really like more community center spaces that patients could utilize um, for their own events. Um, we, at my old clinic, we did a little bit of, uh, or the mental health department did a lot of group work, mostly around specific diseases or people's experiences as transgender people and around some mental health conditions. And I think that opens up a little bit of space to talk about um, some of the other issues you mentioned. But, um, but those are, you know, they're, I don't, 
like there's I don't think there's much opportunity for um, for patients to really like organize and discuss some of these issues that affect like theirs and all of our health. Yeah, I think the the clinic in general is not really seen as like a community space the way maybe a library might be a little bit more or um, I mean we have a dearth of community spaces in this country. I think you know there's not many places you can go and just um, you know try to organize a political meeting or even just you know hang out and meet people and talk about common issues. Um, I've heard that like the clinic I worked at used to be um, used to have a little bit more community space. Like they used to have a space on the first floor where they did yoga classes like once a week. Um, but New York City is really tight on space and. I think eventually the, that space was turned into um, turned into uh, offices. Um, there is a boardroom on the fifth, uh, the sixth floor, I think, but that's like uh, you know, I think it's not as accessible as like just a room that you can walk into on the first floor of a building. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and, and so what do you think the role is now of, of people or clinics or collectives who are committed to sort of health justice issues around the LGBTQ community hmm. if, I mean, in many ways ACT UP was was a really important contribution to the struggle mm-hmm. in the 80s and, and there's been a lot of other groups and, and people since then, hmm. but more present, what what do you think is the main or the main issues that, hmm. that the community is dealing with now or should be dealing with? Hmm. Um, I mean, you know, in the current, like, political environment, uh, there's so many issues. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but some of the main ones that people are working on are, I mean, I guess, like, some of the first things that come to mind are, um, you know, sanctuary protection um, and justice for undocumented um, LGBTQ people in the context of the, like, greater uh, immigration movement. You know, trans justice specifically. I mean, in healthcare, like access to trans health needs and affirming spaces for transgender people. You know, I think like uh, historically, there's been a like a divide. I think in LGBT politics between, you know, sort of liberal demands and more radical ones. Um, the liberal demands being sort of. Uh, you know, access to marriage, um, and that has really gotten a lot of money and attention from um, a lot of wealthy LGBT um, donors and kind of funds the mainstream, like human rights campaign sort of thing. And, you know, some people say that um, actually the demands of the movement should be um, more radical and and focus on things like, uh, you know, violence um, and, you know, especially... Um, violence against trans people and gender non-conforming people. Both police violence and just general societal violence. And I think that's, uh, yeah, that's a really important, I mean, uh, important thing to think about. Like, you know, violence is, like all kinds of violence, is clearly like a health and public health issue. Um, So I think one of the things that, you know, clinics could do is um, open up dialogue on these issues, um, on specifically on the issue of um, of violence in our communities, and also violence. You know, violence in the LGBTQ community, I think, is kind of like a canary in the coal mine in that um, it's it is like the um, it represents 
or is the tip of an iceberg where, you know, we live in a very violent society. There's, I mean, literally there's like more guns in America than in so much of the world. Um, the military and violence is so glorified, the police. Um, so I think like queer people could and do have a, a really valuable perspective on, um, you know, trying to change our both, you know, the culture of violence against LGBT people, but also just, like, change the overall culture of violence in our society. Um, and potentially, like, you know, health centers could be places where that could happen if, like, fostering those discussions was part of um, the kind of health and medicine that we practiced in health centers. But, again, it's very challenging in this, yeah, this kind of insurance-driven, profit-driven healthcare environment to do that kind of you know, social community-based medicine. Are there are there groups or forums or websites, zines, materials that mm. you think people should plug into to get updates, inspiration? Huh. I mean, you mentioned a few great organizations. There's a few others that I think of. Um, Queerocracy. I, I haven't kept up with what they're doing. There used to be this great organization called Queers for Economic Justice. Mm but they lost their funding a few years ago. They closed, I think, in like 2014 or something like that, which is a drag. They weren't specifically health-centered, but, you know, I think economic justice is very much related to health. I mean, you know, there's like a really rich history of AIDS activism that still um, exists that is very queer. ACT UP is still acting up, um, and now, uh, you know, they're doing a lot of work around um, the ACA and um, single-payer health care to some extent. And they're in multiple cities, like in, in uh, New York and Philly. I think, you know, there's a lot of community organizations that do similar work with a lot of queer people, but they may not necessarily be, like, uh, explicitly queer-identified, yeah. you know, organizations. Um, yeah. All right. And then where do you see yourself after sort of that transition from leaving your previous clinic, uh, you, where did you sort of had to transition to and where are you hoping to get involved with going so, forward? So I'm like, I'm trying out a new model. So I just started a new job um, working part-time in urgent care, which is, uh, is not the, the kind of medicine I saw myself doing when I got into medicine. I really wanted to do like community-based medicine and try to be an organizer and a physician. Um, but, you know, I found that, like, I, the volume of work was um, a lot, and it really precluded me from being able to do any of the organizing and advocacy that I wanted to do and activism. I, uh, I'm trying a new model of life where I'm working part-time in a clinical job, um, and I'm doing um, activism on the side just in my spare time, which is um, a bunch of time that I have now. And I'm mostly working on single-payer health activism in New York State because I think that that could really, um, you know, change the kind of segregated care that I saw at my last job. I think I felt really outraged um, being at like working in the community health center setting because it's just very clear that there's two worlds in medicine. You know, there's the the community health center world and, um, you know, for the have-nots and then the rest of the medical system for the haves. And, it yeah, I find, I mean, there's um, both class segregation and racial segregation, and I just think it's wrong. And I so I hope to use that perspective I got, like working 
in that system um, in the community health centers to try to change the system and make it more just for for people. Great. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you making time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. There is no hierarchy of oppressions by Audre Lorde. I was born black and a woman. I am trying to become the strongest person I can become, to live the life I have been given, and to help affect change toward a livable future for this earth and for my children. As a black, lesbian, feminist, socialist, poet, mother of two, including one boy and member of an interracial couple, I usually find myself part of some group in which the majority defines me as deviant, difficult, inferior, or just plain wrong. From my membership in all of these groups, I have learned that oppression and the intolerance of difference come in all shapes and sizes and colors and sexualities, and that among those of us who share the goals of liberation and a workable future for our children, there can be no hierarchies of oppression. I have learned that sexism, a belief in the inherent superiority of one sex over all others and thereby its right to dominance, and heterosexism, a belief in the inherent superiority of one pattern of loving over all others and thereby its right to dominance, both arise from the same source as racism, a belief in the inherent superiority of one race over all others and thereby its right to dominance. Oh, says a voice from the black community, but being black is normal. Well, I and many black people of my age can remember grimly the days when it didn't used to be. I simply do not believe that one aspect of myself can possibly profit from the oppression of another part of my identity. I know that my people cannot possibly profit from the oppression of any other group which seeks the right to peaceful existence. Rather, we diminish ourselves by denying to others what we have shed blood to obtain for our children. And those children need to learn that they do not have to become like each other in order to work together for a future they will all share. The increasing attacks upon lesbians and gay men are only an introduction to the increasing attacks upon all black people. For wherever oppression manifests itself in this country, black people are potential victims. And it is a standard of right-wing cynicism to encourage members of oppressed groups to act against each other. And so long as we are divided because of our particular identities, we cannot join together in effective political action. Within the lesbian community, I am black. And within the black community, I am a lesbian. Any attack against black people is a lesbian and gay issue because I and thousands of other black women are part of the lesbian community. Any attack against lesbians and gays is a black issue because thousands of lesbians and gay men are black. There is no hierarchy of oppression. It is not accidental that the Family Protection Act, which is virulently anti-woman and anti-black, is also anti-gay. As a black person, I know who my enemies are. And when the Ku Klux Klan goes to court in Detroit to try and force the Board of Education to remove books the Klan believes hint at homosexuality, then I know I cannot afford the luxury of fighting one form of oppression only. I cannot afford to believe that freedom from intolerance is the right of only one particular group, and I cannot afford to choose between the fronts upon which I must battle these forces of discrimination wherever they appear to destroy me. And when they appear to destroy me, it will not be long before they appear to destroy you. Together, I'm powerful. Empowerando de 